Well, I invite you to take your seats as uh, we begin our time this morning. Um, You'll probably quickly notice I'm not Richard Goff, um, although one day I do hope to have my beard look as good as his does. Um, Richard asked me to to fill in for him this week as uh, he and Joel are over visiting with Mark in Kenya. Um, So as far as I've heard, everything's going well. I think they did have a a little bit of a luggage situation getting over there, Um, but I think that's all been uh, settled now. The brownies did make it from what I've been told, so I think Kyle's happy about that. Um, but it's a, it's a joy for me to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, for those of you that I haven't met, uh, my name is Seth, and uh, my wife and I, Sam, have been here uh, about three years uh, here at Faith Community Church, and so I'm actually entering my last uh, year at TES, um, and we have a baby coming in two months. So we uh, greatly appreciate y'all's prayers uh, for all that we have going on. Um, but like I said, it's exciting to be here uh, with y'all this morning um, for the next few minutes. So uh, All that being said, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our time uh, today. Father, we exalt you this morning as our creator and as our savior and as our king. We are giving you praise this morning because you alone are worthy of our honor and of our glory. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this church and for the body that you are building here, and you continually strengthen and uh, conform into the image of your son. Father, I just ask that as we come to your word this morning that you would be glorified, that your uh, word would ring true and pierce our hearts, that we might uh, walk away knowing how to be uh, more godly, more Christ-like in everything that we do. We thank you for this privilege of gathering and fellowshipping together. I thank you for these families that are represented here. We just pray for our time this morning and ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So Richard told me that y'all have been working through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and I think most recently are in chapter 11, is that right? Uh, talking about uh, men and women and headship and submission and the God's design, right, for, uh, for uh, men and women. So I thought it would be appropriate this morning uh, to tie our text uh, for this next hour um, into this idea of Christian submission and humility and see what that looks like within the body of Christ. So there's hardly, I think one could make a case that there's hardly a better book uh, in the New Testament to do that uh, than the book of 1 Peter. Um, This letter contains, I think, some of the most profound and motivating truths of any uh, book in the New Testament. Um, So we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. This is probably going to feel a little bit more like a sermon uh, than probably what Richard normally does, so I apologize for that. But um, while our main points are going to be coming from a few verses in chapter 3, I really thought it would be helpful to really take a step back and look at the book of 1 Peter as a whole, because as I was preparing for this morning, there really is um, a, a plethora of, of areas in this book that talk about this idea of humility and submission and endurance and persevering in difficult times. So I want to show how this entire letter is really aimed towards this goal. Um, and to be completely honest with you, as I was preparing, I debated just getting up here and reading First Peter from beginning to end, uh, praying and letting that be it, because I don't think I can add anything else than what's already in here, um, because like I said, there are just uh, so many profound teachings and uh, wonderful uh, lessons for us um, with regards to uh, how to submit to one another and endure uh, suffering as well. But our passage today should raise several questions for all of us. How are we as believers to conduct ourselves with one another? How are we to conduct ourselves with those who are outside of the church? How are we to think about the challenges and difficulties of being a Christ follower in this world? How are we to respond to actual persecution or mistreatment for the name of Christ? 
So these are all questions that I'm hoping that we'll answer today in just the few minutes that we have, especially in light of this ever-darkening, ever-dangerous um, uh, world around us, if you will. Uh, we're constantly being bombarded from the left and from the right on uh, advice and counsel, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to behave, how we're to handle conflict, how we are to respond when we are treated unfairly, how to claim things that are rightfully ours. We live in a culture that is uh, very eye for eye, tooth for tooth, promotes this retaliatory mentality all around us. Personal revenge stories grip our attention at the box office, and they do incredible numbers uh, in the movies. Best-selling books and tabloids are filled with story after story of personal revenge uh, you know, uh, encounters after someone has experienced some real or even just a perceived injustice against them. We're also told that it's better to avoid suffering and to minimize suffering at all possible costs. If you're suffering, then clearly what you're doing is not good. You need to avoid it altogether. But if we're being honest, this is, I think, a mentality that can slip into our own thinking and our own minds as believers as well. And if we're not careful, if we're not guarding our steps, if we're not mirroring our lives the way Scripture tells us to do, uh, we might also fall into this uh, pattern of thinking that all suffering is bad and all suffering is not worthwhile. Perhaps it was your upbringing. Uh, maybe it was the way you were raised that taught you this. Or um, maybe living you know, um, on your own, uh, having to fend for yourself, figuring out uh, how to protect yourself has, has kind of trained you to live this way. And if I had to guess, uh, we probably all struggle with the challenge of disciplining ourselves to be self-controlled, to be calm, to be Christ-like when we are under intense pressure, intense suffering, or to intense reviling. For some of you, it may be within your own family. It may be a conflict with your immediate family or your extended family. Um, it could be a coworker. It could be a friend, someone that's hurt you deeply because of how you've chosen to live your life to follow Christ. Maybe it's an entirely total stranger. It could be someone you don't even know, but has encountered you and seen the way that you live for the Lord and has treated you poorly because of that. But as we'll see this morning, the Christian's response to suffering and persecution is markedly different from that of the world around us. And so the question this morning is, how will you and how will I respond when we face suffering, when we face persecution, when we face difficult times? Whose advice are we listening to? Are we listening to the world, or are we going to listen to the Word? Now, as I said, there's hardly, I think, a better book than 1 Peter to to handle this task. Um, So we are going to look, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Um, And if you bear with me, we're going to go through a little bit of more lengthy introduction. Um, But I thought it would be helpful um, to set the stage for us this morning by looking at um, the context of 1 Peter leading up to uh, where we'll be spending our time today in chapter 3. So this is basically going to be a five-verse sermon over the entire book of 1 Peter. Um, so just buckle up, and we're going to have fun with it. So this letter, um, for those of you that may not know, was written to a specific group of um, believers who uh, were dispersed um, all across Asia Minor. Um, they likely came out of a, a Jewish background, and because of their conversion to Christianity, we're now experiencing hostility, uh, persecution, uh, difficult times uh, from this hostile world that they lived in because of their faith in Christ. And so Peter's hope throughout this letter is really to exhort and to encourage and to build up these probably weak and discouraged believers to 
press on, to stay the course, despite all of the overwhelming uh, pressure and, um, and threats around them. So to demonstrate this, I thought it would be helpful to begin our time in chapter 1. So if you're in First Peter, look with me at chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And Peter opens this letter with a, what I would say is a wonderfully encouraging reminder that the inheritance that we have as believers in Christ cannot be touched by any worldly power, any worldly threat, anything of this worldly nature. It is protected by the power of God. And though Peter says it is necessary sometimes for us to be grieved by these trials. We as believers are not to lose heart. We're not to be discouraged, but we are to actually rejoice in this because the believer's suffering is not pointless. There is purpose in our suffering, and that is the proving out of our faith, proving that the faith that we have is more precious than gold, is more valuable than gold, just like gold, which is refined through the flame and through fire, so the believer is also refined and purified through trials and difficulty. And it is the hope of our inheritance, which is seeing Christ fully, that we can rejoice with joy and glory even in the midst of unspeakable difficulty. He goes on in chapter 1 in verse 13 saying, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, being not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so despite this suffering and this persecution that these believers are facing, Peter instructs them to essentially, in literal, the literal translation, is gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, and that probably sounds a little maybe foreign to some of us today, but if you were to think about it today, it would be like saying, buckle up, get ready, let's go. Get, get yourself ready for action rather than running from and trying to avoid this suffering or this difficult situation. So Peter, Peter admonishes these believers to prepare themselves for action. But it's important to notice that this action is not reckless. It is not um, panicked. It is sober. It is measured. And it is focused solely on the coming grace when Christ returns at his second coming. Paul says that this momentary light affliction is working out an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And by no means do I intend to downplay the reality of suffering in each of our lives. It is obviously difficult. It is hard. 
I only hope to draw your eyes first, though, to the text and ultimately onto Christ as our example for how to deal godly with these situations. Peter continues in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So you can see the practical outworking of this admonishment that Peter is giving is a stark contrast for the believer than what it is for the one who does not know the Lord. Believers are to be known for how we abstain from all manner of fleshly lusts, not just in the realm of sexual desires, but any ungodly lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5 says the deeds of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So that list isn't even exhaustive, but it's trying to be representative of all of these things that believers are to be abstaining from, to be known for not being characterized by these things. So any of these things, and and really what's so amazing about all of these is what the effect that a holy, submissive believer's life can have on an unbeliever. Even though you may be slandered, you may be falsely accused, you may be uh, treated unfairly, you may be treated you know, unjustly. When the Lord returns to judge the earth, Peter says that your behavior will cause them to glorify God. That's a, that's a, it's a fascinating thought. They will be agreeing with God's judgment because of how you carried yourself in this world. So Peter doesn't give them an exhortation to verbally defend themselves or to campaign on their innocence. He instead admonishes these believers to continue pursuing godly conduct and to ultimately entrust themselves to the Lord. So Peter is first talking about how to submit yourselves to those who are persecuting you uh, or reviling you or slandering you, but he goes on to talk about how believers are to submit themselves to governing authorities. Look with me uh, later in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God that by doing good you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants are to be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, excuse me, unrighteously. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. Now, we could easily spend the rest of our time just on these verses right here. Um, It's such a profound message. But by submitting ourselves, not only to those around us who are persecuting us, but also to uh, governors uh, that are given in place uh, over us, we are actually fulfilling the will of God. And by doing so, we silence 
the ignorance of foolish men. Christians are not to use their freedom in Christ as a license to sin. As Paul says in Romans, we are not to continue in sin so that grace may abound. Peter's key takeaway from these verses is really found in verses 19 through 20. He says, we find favor with God when we take matters into our own hands and exact our own revenge. No, he doesn't say that. He says, we find favor with God whenever we bear up under sorrows when we are suffering unrighteously. Meaning that if we are suffering and we have given no sinful cause for our persecution, then we are finding favor with the Lord. Now, I think sometimes people want to claim they're being persecuted. They want to claim mistreatment. And I think sometimes it's genuine. But I also think a lot of times, if you look a little bit closer, it just reveals that that person is just being rebellious or they're being a lawbreaker or just a jerk, really. Not all persecution is coming from a place of godly action. And so what Peter's talking about here is, he says, what credit is there? What good is it if you are treated harshly when you sin? It's only those who suffer for doing good, in other words, who are doing the will of God, that God will find favor in that suffering and how you respond. Moving on to chapter 3, Peter admonishes husbands and wives to submit to one another. Wives are called to do so even when their husbands are being disobedient to God's word. He says that so that by their behavior, they might win their husbands to repentance. Notice that same idea, how believers win the Gentiles on the day of visitation. So also wives win their husbands by their godly behavior. Husbands are also to submit themselves to their wives in an understanding way and in a way that honors her. So this brings us up to our verses for this morning, and we'll be spending the next few minutes of our time um, in verses 8 through 12. And here, Peter basically provides a summary of everything that he's been talking about up to this point. He's, talked, he's instructed believers on how to submit themselves in a hostile world around them, how to uh, submit themselves under governing authorities and to be uh, godly in those situations, and also in the context of marriage, how to submit to one another. So look with me now at beginning in uh, verse 8, excuse me, it's actually verse yeah, 8 through 12. He says in verse 8, now to sum up, basically saying, here's everything I've already said. All of you be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, Excuse me, for the one who desires to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if you were to provide a summary of the book of First Peter, I think these five verses could do that. So as we examine uh, our, these five verses, I want to highlight two essential directives to righteously endure the Christian life. Now that was a little bit long, so I'll say it again. Two essential directives to righteously endure the Christian life. And this first directive that Peter gives us is found in verses 8 and 9, and that is that we are to pursue the purpose of our calling. We as believers are to pursue the purpose of our calling He sums up his previous teaching that he has given so far by commanding believers to be these five qualities, be these five characteristics. And notice that he's switching here 
Previously, in verses 1 through 7, he was talking to husbands and wives, but now he switches to all of you. So this is universal for all believers. All believers are called to be these five things. It doesn't matter whether you are um, in leadership or just a normal lay person in the church. All believers are expected to be these five things. And these five, this first verse, uh, verse 8, really has to deal with primarily how believers interact with one another within the context of the church. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on each of these, but I, I do think it would be helpful to understand what they mean. And really the fact that Peter includes these in these letters, if you think about it, the fact that he had to say these things means that they weren't always being practiced at that time. And just like in our time today, in our world today, there are situations, there are times when we as believers are not practicing the things that we are to do. There are times that we are not living as we should. So first, he says, all of you are to be like-minded. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we all have to agree on every single thing, every single time, everywhere we go. Uh, I know there are several people in this church who are uh, big fans of rival sports teams, which there would, those are irre- irreconcilable from what I understand. We have folks that work in different industries in their careers, often competing industries. Being like-minded is something far greater than just surface-level affiliation. It's much deeper than that. Being like-minded means recognizing that all of us are members of the same body. And even though we are unique and we are different and we all serve different purposes within the body of Christ, we are all members of the same bodily purpose. Paul says in Romans 12, You who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. In that same chapter, he encourages us to be of the same mind toward one another. Not being haughty, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. So a like-minded group of believers is a humble body of people that are thinking the same things about the truths of God's word. I always find it interesting uh, when you think about uh, churches or seminaries or schools, what have you, uh, that don't really have a statement of faith, that don't really have particular viewpoints on any major uh, doctrinal stances, uh, except maybe on the very high-level topics, right? I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people think that's how you achieve unity. You have a very broad tent that you allow as many people as possible to come up under. But in actuality, I think that actually can undermine true unity. This is, I think, one of the sweetest aspects and one of the, um, the, the sweetest things that my wife and I discovered when we first came to this church which this was a body of believers that held to a, the same doctrine of beliefs. There was a statement of faith, a very detailed statement of faith if you've not read it. It's very thorough, and that's rare in this day and age. But these beliefs, this anchor, becomes a wonderful, not only a personal anchor, but a, a corporate anchor for the body as well during times of difficulty. If you don't know what you believe, if you don't agree on what you believe, how is there any steady footing when going through difficulty? So we're to be like-minded. Peter also says that we are to be sympathetic. And if you remember back earlier in this chapter, this echoes Peter's instruction for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, if one member suffers, all of the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. We, you and I, are not allowed to be indifferent towards the plight of other believers in our body. And if we realize it or not, uh, I think all of us uh, probably deal with this in some, some way or another, 
But there are people all around us every Sunday that are likely suffering in some way. We think that we have to come to church with a smile on our face and family looking on nice, and we are very easy to just pass over the fact that there is challenge in our life. There is suffering that is going on. You might be devastated by something that's going on, and no one has any idea that you and your family are dealing with this issue. But how greatly does that minimize the role of the body of Christ in caring for one another, in building up one another, in sharing one another's burdens? We are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that starts by being a sympathetic body of believers, a body that cares for one another. We are not allowed to be insensitive or dismissive to any of the needs or joys or sorrows or anything like that that uh, those around us, including unbelievers, right? We're not allowed to be insensitive to any of those things. But particularly within the household of God, how much more should that sympathetic mindset be at the forefront of all that we do? So to live sympathetically, this means to bear with patience and build up one another throughout the ups and downs and the trials of life. If the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, so also must his people be. Thirdly, Peter says we are to be brotherly. One writer described this characteristic as a mutual affection for one another. Now, if you have siblings, uh, I'm sure you've, hopefully, you've experienced this, uh, that unique bond with your brother or your sister, that it's, it's different than a friend, it's different than a parent, it's a special bond. The opposite is also true, though. Some of us have not experienced that, or we've experienced the opposite, where there's tension or estrangement or strained relationships. But what Peter is talking about here is something far greater than these earthly familial bonds. The brotherly bonds of affection in God's family are seen in the selfless love displayed toward one another. I'm sure some of you have experienced this. I know I have when you meet a, a fellow believer for the first time that you, you did not know. Maybe it's at a restaurant or you're in the store or whatever. And there's an instant affection, an instant bond with that person that, if we're being honest, sometimes you feel more inclined to spend time with that person than maybe even members of your own family, right? It's, it's hard to explain, but what we're talking about here is that brotherly bond of affection that is shared by those who are of the same spirit. There's immediate affection that we have for them. Psalm 133, which is one of my absolute favorite psalms, I think perfectly captures the beauty of this brotherly mindset of God's people. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the good oil coming down upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. We display this brotherly affection in a numerous amount of ways. Whether we serve others in the body, whether we're putting other people's needs before our own, how we are going about serving everyone on a Sunday morning, that's, that's that brotherly affection, that, that camaraderie that we share together. I think if we're, if we're to look at these five qualities as a whole, that really is the thrust of all of them. How are we to consider others more important than ourselves? How are we to put others in our, particularly in the church around us, but then also those outside of the church, those unbelievers? How do we consider others more important than ourselves? Fourthly, we're called to be tender-hearted. I was doing a little, a little digging. This word actually comes from the Greek word for intestine. 
for uh, inners, your innermost, if you think about your guts, your innermost part. So when we talk about being tenderhearted, what, what we're talking about is a compassionate disposition that exudes forth from the innermost part of who we are. As believers, we are not to be hard-hearted towards others. We are not to hold grudges towards one another. We are to forgive others in a compassionate way. Paul says in Ephesians 4 to be tender-hearted by graciously forgiving one another. So if you're not a forgiving person, you can't expect to be, have a tender heart. Or if you, and I can say it the other way. If you don't have a tender heart, I can guarantee you you're probably not a forgiving person. Body, the body of Christ is characterized by this tender disposition, this forgiving nature. If we believe what we believe about the doctrine of sin, then we should always also know uh, that forgiveness is going to be necessary, and we should practice that. An unforgiving spirit can ruin families, it can ruin marriages, it can ruin all manner of relationships, it can ruin churches. And this is a, a common phenomenon that we see in the world around us. But I think it's even more heartbreaking when we see those things take place within the body of Christ. Our exhortation here is that we are to be characterized by a merciful disposition to all of those who are around us. And if you remember, just, just a few weeks ago, uh, in the main service, Pastor Shane uh, walked us through Matthew uh, 18, the story about the slave who had an immense, unpayable debt forgiven to him, but then he turned right around to his fellow slave who owed much less and refused to forgive his debt. And in verse 33 of Matthew 18, the master drives this point home. By saying, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? My friends, this morning there can be no room in our hearts for bitterness or unforgiveness. So the last quality that Peter commands us to be is humble in spirit. This fifth quality, I think, captures the heart of all the others. A humble believer is a believer that considers himself or herself as less important than those around him. When a church is comprised of humble servants of Christ, there is a unity because nobody is seeking to be wise in their own mind. They're all looking out for the interests of others. There can be sympathy and tenderheartedness because a humble heart recognizes that caring for the needs and the sufferings of others is far greater than having someone even care for their own needs and looking out for their own interests. All these together create a spirit of brotherhood within a body of believers that can encourage, pray for, care for, supply every need of that body, no matter what the circumstances are. Think about that in context of suffering and in context of going through difficult times. So if verse 8 is instruction on how believers are to carry themselves within the body of Christ, verse 9 really gives an explanation for how this is to look uh, primarily outside of the church, but I think it also can apply when we are mistreated from those inside the church as well. Peter says we are to be these five qualities, and in verse 9 he says, not returning evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, when we hear this verse, we probably all agree with it in our heads. We're like, that's really good. Um, But if we're honest, it's probably one of the hardest verses in Scripture to obey. Um, I know because as I was preparing this morning, I was thinking back on all the times that I've chosen to revile. That I've chosen to return evil for evil because of something someone said to me. We've likely all felt that desire. Uh, Sometimes it comes from nowhere, it seems, that we've been struck, so we want to strike back. We want to turn to our poisoned words rather than turning the other cheek. 
And even if you have resisted this, even if you're a master at resisting this type of temptation, none of us, the author of Hebrews says, have resisted to the point of shedding blood. None of us have resisted this as much as Christ has, and, and, and none of us are, are innocent of this. So sometimes it's easy. It seems like these biting responses, these angry or involuntary uh, lashings out when we're persecuted, they come from nowhere. But if we're saying, you know, to say they came from nowhere is just another way of saying they came out of a prideful heart. When we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, whenever we are attacked, it no longer, our response no longer becomes out of a desire to defend God, but to defend ourselves. When we think about what it looks like to model incredible self-control and God-honoring behavior in response to mistreatment or attacks, there's no greater example than that of our own Savior. This attitude is consistent with what Jesus taught. If you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice he says, Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not just because you, you're doing something evil. It's a godly persecution for doing good things. Also in Luke 6, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who disparage you. It's hard to have enemies when you're praying for people that disparage you. And it's hard to have hate in your heart or hard to uh, have a, an unforgiving or unsympathetic uh, disposition towards that person if you're praying for them. If you've not tried that, you should, and you'll be amazed at how quickly uh, that anger and that resentment melts away. But not only do we have Christ's teaching to follow, even better, we have his own personal example. Not only did Christ teach this, he demonstrated it. Peter says earlier in chapter 2, for what credit is there if when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this, finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return, while suffering he was uttering no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You may remember when Christ was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, he was being conspired against. Several came forward trying to uh, lay false testimony, false accusations to get him incriminated. He didn't answer. He was spit on, beaten, slapped, punched. He did not strike back. When he stood before Pilate being accused by the chief priest, he did not answer a single charge that they brought against him. And if you read the gospel writers, all of them account or recount that this marveled Pilate. Pilate marveled at this, which means he had never seen anything like it. He was astonished that this man, Christ, did not respond to a single accusation before him. When he was stripped or beaten, given a crown of thorns, a reed as a mock scepter, he was mocked as Israel's king, he was blasphemed by the people, he was insulted by the robbers on the cross next to him. He did not retaliate. Instead, Peter says, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. 
And there can be no greater example to follow because there is no one more worthy or innocent and able to defend himself than the Son of God, and yet he chose not to. Christ displayed ultimate humility, ultimate selflessness. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. So Christ visibly and totally demonstrated what it looks like not to revile, but to bless. And we know that everything Christ did was good. And so he had no reason to be treated this way, but yet he did not take matters into his own hands. My friends, we have been the recipients of immense grace. And in the same way, we are to extend the mercy of forgiveness that God has shown us. God has spared us from his wrath in Christ. Therefore, we too should spare our persecutors our own wrath. And that sounds a little silly to say when we think about our wrath versus God's wrath. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the point. How small and how insignificant are we and our, how, how uh, seemingly insignificant are our offenses being done to us when we compare how great and how good and how holy God is and how much he has been reviled, how much he has been offended, and yet he still shows patience. He still leaves time for men and women to come to know him, to repent. I think Christ understood this mindset fully. His treatment on the cross and his, uh, his response to how he had been treated, I think, based on what we read in First Peter, was part of what led that centurion to look up and realize this, this was God's son. He realized that Christ was suffering unjustly, but he did not take matters into his own hands. He did not revile. He entrusted himself to the Lord. Again, that testimony to the Gentile, that testimony to the pagan, by our actions, how we live. I'm a firm believer in that no one will ever come to know the Lord just by watching you be a Christian. They still need to hear the gospel. But if what you're telling them and what they're witnessing in you don't match up, it's not going to work. The gospel is spoken, but it's also uh, a, the result of the gospel is lived out in our lives, and it becomes, it becomes a testimony to those around us. It's not only a testimony to those around us, it's a testimony to the Lord. And we can trust that one day the Lord will make all things right. Either by saving that person and punishing Christ for that person, or in his eternal judgment, he will make things right. Now, I I believe Christ responded the way he did, not just because he was the Son of God. and That's the, the church answer. He's Jesus, of course he did, right? But I think he understood that the truths that we find in the second half of this passage. Look with me now at verses 10 to 12 where we see this second essential directive to righteously endure the Christian life. And that is that we must remember the source of our hope. So we are to pursue the purpose of our calling, but then we're also to remember the source of our hope. And this really is the motivation for how we are to pursue what Peter has talked about, how we are to pursue this mindset, this attitude of godly submission, of humility when facing difficult circumstances. Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he says, For the one who desires to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good, and he must seek peace and pursue it. Now, if you've ever read uh, the full context of Psalm 34, you'll quickly realize that this entire psalm is devoted to this idea of the righteous suffering and the Lord delivering them from their circumstances. And again, this theme, as we've seen just in these few short chapters, is found all throughout the book of First Peter. 
Now, it's certainly true that the person who uh, keeps their lips from evil and their, their mouth from speaking deceit will certainly live a, a, a blessed life on this earth. They will, uh, be, they will honor the Lord, and the Lord will honor them because of that. But I think what Peter has in mind here is something much greater than just this earthly, temporal life that we are living currently. And the reason for that is, uh, verses 10 to 12, they begin with, a uh, in the Greek, a conjunction that essentially connect these verses to the verses that just came before, giving the reason for why Peter can say, hey, be these things, do not revile, give a blessing. You are called to inherit a blessing. So these verses now serve as further explanation. And so Peter can say, this is why we were called for this purpose, and that the purpose of not reviling, the purpose of, of uh, submitting ourselves to unjust treatment. This blessing of life and good days is eternal life in Christ. It's the salvation that Peter says in chapter 1 was ready to be revealed in the last time. Obviously, those who know the Lord now are positionally saved, but there is a coming a day when we will be totally saved. The final salvation will be taken out of this this, of this world. So Peter is saying that the person who desires to see this, to see long life, good days, he must live this way. He must avoid evil. He must pursue peace. These are the marks of true Christian submissiveness. These qualities are what should be displayed in all of us as we grow and as we mature. And inevitably... Uh, some will try to argue, and, and, and honestly, sometimes we convince ourselves of this, of that, that godly submission is weakness. We think that it's weak to not revile back. We, we think we can handle this in our own power. I know how to deal with this. We think we have a silver bullet that will solve every crisis that we're in because we're trusting in our own abilities. But 2 Corinthians 12 reminds us that Christ's power is perfected in our weakness, not our strength. When we are weak, then we are strong in Christ. Righteous submission, especially in the face of threat or persecution, it actually requires great strength and great self-control. It's the exact opposite of weakness. It requires divine aid through the submission of the Holy Spirit to keep our tongues from deceit. James says, if you can bridle the tongue, then you're a perfect person, essentially. And I don't think any of us have figured that out because it's hard, and it requires strength to submit in the face of difficulty. It requires strength to turn from deceit and to turn from evil and to do good, it requires strength to constantly pursue peace instead of pursuing retaliation. And it's necessary that we do these things primarily when we consider the source of our hope. Verse 12, Peter says again, quoting Psalm 34, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Similar echoes later in in 1 Peter, you hear the Lord is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Same kind of mindset here. So the hope that you can have, that I can have, and that all of us as believers can have, is that when we are in the midst of a trial, when we are in the midst of suffering, that if you are suffering for righteousness sake, even if you are alone, even if you have no one there around you, the Lord sees you, the Lord hears you, the Lord knows I think that's one of the most comforting truths that I've ever encountered in the last five years. When you look at the world around us, all manner of evil that goes on, it seems overwhelming that we could try to be accountable for all of it. And the reality is we can't. But the Lord knows. He knows. And we can take comfort in that. That's not to say we aren't to do anything about uh, the, the injustice or the, the evil in our world, right? We're to pursue peace. We're to seek it out. 
But ultimately, we know that all things will be handled by the Lord one day. He will not forget those who have suffered for His name. He will not uh, forget those who have suffered for doing good. Those who submit their lives to the Lord here on the earth, they're going to inherit a much greater inheritance and a much greater blessing uh, than anything uh, this world could provide. Any acceptance from this world, uh, any status, any inclusion this world can provide will pale in comparison to uh, the joy of knowing the Lord. Psalm 34 continues and says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the evils against the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. There's not a single transgression or evil done to a righteous person that the Lord will not handle or take into account. And so I think that's great encouragement for all of us, right? Our suffering does not return void. It's intentional. It's purposeful. Because first, it brings God glory when we suffer for doing His will. But it also brings a blessing to us as we find favor in the Lord's eyes and as He helps us to endure and as He sanctifies us in this process. And the same hope that the Lord will deal justly with us is the same hope that He will also deal justly with those who have persecuted us. On one hand, we obviously hope and we we seek to pursue uh, salvation for all those that we come in contact with. We want all men and women to know the Lord. And we want it to be evidenced in our own lives that we believe this gospel and we've been changed by it. But on the other hand, we also, in in a bittersweet way, we also can rejoice that the Lord will punish the evildoer one day. He will exact his justice in his own time and in his own way. And one of my absolute favorite passages in a, I think, a perfect, um, perfect support of this message, Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of the Lord. Excuse me, for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what should our response be? What should our, what should our response be to this? What does it look like to be these five qualities, to not revile to be like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, humble in spirit? How do you suffer righteously and not revile or pay back evil for evil, even if you've been unjustly treated? How can you live a life that finds favor in God's eyes and draws His ever-listening ear close to your prayer? How can you imitate the Savior's meekness when facing the greatest persecution well, Peter gives us this in two short, these few short verses, these two directives to righteously endure the Christian life. The first, you must pursue the purpose of your calling. And the second is that you must remember the source of your hope. We serve a faithful, a compassionate, and an eternal God who will not let the righteous undergo decay. He will bring everything to light that is hidden for judgment in its right time. So what are we to do? How are we to, how are we to live? How are we to respond? I, I think it... Uh, it's best that I just leave you with these words from the rest of First Peter. So we've looked at 
chapters 1 through 3, and I just want to read you some verses from the rest of this, this wonderful book. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their fear and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with fear. Having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than doing wrong. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice in exaltation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure none of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame. But it is to glor- he is to glorify God in this name. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer?